Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have John Rossman with me on the show. John joined Amazon in 2002 as Director of Merchant Integration, where he led the launch of Amazon's third-party marketplace business. John also went on to lead the e-commerce solutions business for Amazon's enterprise clients, such as Target.com and Toys R Us. Since leaving Amazon in late 2005, John has advised clients across many industries on innovation and digital strategy as managing partner of Rossman Partners. John is also a frequent keynote speaker and author of three books, including the newly released edition of The Amazon Way, which translates Amazon's unique culture and practices into actionable insights and opportunities, and provides a fantastic examination of Amazon's leadership principles. Welcome to the show, John. Tyler, it's great to be here. Nice to meet you. Well, it's fantastic to have you on the show. You've done a lot of fundamental work and knowledge sharing in this space and really keen to understand your experience at Amazon. So maybe if we take it there to kick things off and go back to 2002, what was it like when you joined Amazon in those days? Well, one thing in general context to remember was the internet bubble had burst, you know, kind of a few months before and everything, right? And so that was the general economic and digital, you know, air was out of the tires uh, and everything, and it impacted the entire tech sector, including Amazon, but everything else. And so I was kind of coming out of one of those failed dot-coms, had really developed a forte in how to do, you know, merchant-to-merchant, business-to-business integration, choreographed integration. I had been a partner at Arthur Anderson before that, and a a former colleague of mine, the guy by the name of Jason Child, who's now the CFO at Splunk. Jason and I had kept in touch and he, and he called me and said, hey, you got to come in and we've got an interesting program or strategy that we're thinking about. And so over a protracted interviewing process, um, I got invited in to help lead the marketplace launch, really part of a team that led the marketplace launch. And it was, uh, it, you know, I hear about people joining Amazon today and kind of the orientation that they go through. I was talking to one exec and she was sequestered for three months so that she could really understand Amazon. And I had like 10 minutes uh, when I was there. Like there was was no orientation and these leadership principles uh, weren't codified at that point. Like Like it was customer obsession, but we were practicing and we were using them all the time. And so it was kind of this formation period. And also at that point, 2002, Amazon was starting to develop its perspective on, well, we're really two types of companies. We're a retailer and we're a platform company. And what a platform company does is we build useful services that both Amazon, the retailer uses, and as importantly, or more importantly, that others use also. And so, you know, from that, um, 
you know, Genesis has sprung so many interesting and successful businesses, including AWS, from that general pattern of what does it mean to be a platform company. And so it was a fascinating time. And, you know, the stock was, I think, $14 uh, was my um, strike price. They were options back then. They weren't RSUs. They were still options. And it, it was clear Amazon was going to survive, but that we were still under a ton of doubt. And the other thing I vividly remember was the mantra was keep headcount flat. So I remember having to go and talk to Wilkie and Jeff Blackburn. We wanted to, we needed to add two account managers to the merchant integration team and I had to talk them out of two headcount to to give. There, there we weren't going to enterprise headcount was flat, and so it was just this bartering game that was that was going on. Obviously, very different than the abundant headcount and resources that are made available today. That's super fascinating, and I'm sure many listeners are feeling a little bit jealous right now itching to have anything close to a $14 strike price option on Amazon stock. Well, what's important to remember is the end point on that, right? And so meaning what everybody remembers is the past, you know, call it 10 years of Amazon stock price, right? Basically up and to the right the entire time. But there was a period of about eight to nine years where the stock was essentially flat. And so from 2001, 2000, 2001 to 2008 or 2009, the stock basically oscillated between a high of 40 and a low of $5. And so I was there during the middle four years of that. And so nobody saw this coming. And so, you know, I've I've done all my therapy on what could have been, you know, and all that, right? Like, I don't look backwards. I don't suffer from that. But nobody saw this coming. And, and it was literally the joke. Every time we released earnings, the stock went down. Like, that was just always the cycle. No matter how good it was, it wasn't good enough. And we were essentially maligned and misunderstood by the market, whereas today, the market understands the game, the playbook of Amazon. I think that's a great reminder that Amazon played the long game and took a while to really show the significant profits that it's starting to show today. So helpful reminder there. Uh, a lot that I love to touch on, John, the keep the headcount flat. You mentioned that this was before the leadership principles were codified, but clearly I think that's an example of frugality, which is a leadership principle today. And we talked about frugality as, as a constraint to help force innovation uh, and everything. But again, they just weren't written down. You can point to them. So we'll get into a little bit more of the leadership principles. That's a great focus of your latest book. But I want to go back a minute to this marketplace business, because I think that, you know, this is so significant. It may or may not have seemed like it when you were first joining, but just the benefit of hindsight today, the marketplace sales on Amazon are 50 to 60 plus percent of total e-commerce sales on Amazon and make up the livelihoods for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different sellers and merchants across the globe. But going back to 2002, you mentioned that thinking had shifted to a platform business. What was the vision of Marketplace at the time? And were there any inklings of this becoming the huge platform it's become today? Big question. Um, so 
our vision was eBay was the king marketplace at that point, right? But it was it was just a free for all, right? Like the, the eBay was essentially like, hey, buyer and seller, you guys do this. We just we're pretty hands off. And from the get go, we said we're going to provide a completely different customer experience, and that customer experience is going to be formed off of one key thing, and that's called trust. And we wanted a customer to be able to trust buying from a third party seller as much as they trusted buying from Amazon, the retailer. And so kind of from that simple strategic statement, we built everything underneath that. And the complexity was we had to create a fairly robust choreography or set of interactions between seller and Amazon in order to provide that trust. But that created a lot of friction and complexity for our sellers. How do we make it as simple and obvious and intuitive and easy for them to do the right thing as possible? And so those were those were the design constraints that we were that we were working towards relative to that. We knew that the marketplace was going to be the critical capability to do a rapid category expansion at Amazon. So at that point, I think 90% of the business was books, music, video. They had, you know, a small electronics category. They had a small home category, but we wanted to launch categories with authoritative selection. And by authoritative means like a customer should have a reasonable chance of finding any type of item in that category that they would want. And so we started with apparel, then went to sporting goods, and then, you know, an expanded home, electronics, all the way through musical instruments and gourmet. And so over about roughly a two-year period, I think we we added 12 category tabs or categories to Amazon. And that allowed us to you know, plant the flagpole in all of these other categories without taking all the the inventory and merchandising risk that a first party business would require you to do. So we we knew at that point it was the essential strategy for Amazon to expand in categories. What we didn't realize was that if you give customers time to migrate their understanding that oh yeah, I, I can buy any category there's advantages to buying online and I can come to Amazon for any categories, not just books, music, video, and you turbo boost the marketplace with prime and FBA as kind of the, I think the complementary triple capability, you give it enough time. Like we didn't see the marketplace that you're talking about uh, today, but nobody saw the Amazon of today back then either. So Nobody predicted this, but we did know it was the critical. We had to have a third party selling capability that worked in order to expand categories. Yeah, that's so key. And I think you touched on FBA and Prime and many of these platform tools and components that Amazon has integrated so seamlessly with the 1P and 3P businesses today. I'm sure we've all had people come up to us and not really understand whether they're buying from Amazon or a third-party merchant when they're shopping for a product on Amazon. It's easy today to see all of the progress Amazon's made. But imagine back when you were in this role, it probably seemed like a daunting task to make sure that the shopping experience for customers didn't feel different 
when you're shopping for, let's say, new books from Amazon retail versus apparel or one of these new categories that you were launching that, that was a little bit more third-party merchant focused in the beginning. Were there any challenges or, or key considerations that you had to work through to make it feel like a cohesive shopping experience? It, it, take every single element of discovery through shopping, through buying, through customer service, through returns, like take every single element. And that was a challenge. But I think a couple of the major unlocks that came along the way there was knowing that we had to have an integrated shopping cart prior to, you know, what we know as the the merchants at marketplace uh, business, there had been a third party selling platform, primarily books and everything, but it was a different pipeline. So it was a different checkout pipeline. So a customer couldn't check out with both a 1P, an, an Amazon item, and a third-party item in the same checking cart, right? So they bifurcated. Well, we, we knew we needed to have that. The other big decision we had, and this was a good early gut check that Bezos and Jason Kyler really made easy for us to make, was what we called handshake. And our strategy was, hey, if we wanted this to be a trusted customer experience, Amazon would charge the credit card and would, would manage payments and fraud and, and all of that. And we would hand an order to the third party. Most order management systems at that point, you, you couldn't easily inject an order into them, right? They, they assumed that they were charging the credit card. So we had a couple of big partners who insisted like, hey, if we're going to do this, you have to send an encrypted credit card to us and we'll charge the credit card. And we thought about it long and hard, had some real thorough debates, were awfully tempted to compromise our position on it. But ultimately, we just said, you know, no, that's the wrong customer model for us. And some third parties kind of like, okay, we'll go ahead and figure it out. We had a couple that walked away uh, from us at that point, but that was a really early call that we made. And I think the third kind of big unlock, and th- this, we didn't have to deal with it so much in the apparel launch, but more in sporting goods and some electronics and home was item authority. And so item authority is being able to differentiate between an item versus an offer. And um, in clarifying that throughout the order catalog system, but also providing tools and mechanisms for the third party sellers to recognize when are you creating an item versus when are you creating an offer on an existing item and how content reconciliation worked, both the practical matters of that as well as the legal matters around that. Those were some of the big topics that we had to tackle and solve for. Integrated search was a big challenge because each category has unique aspects uh, relative to search, how we did browsing and binning and all the discovery elements, how we did customer service. Every single element was impacted by having third-party sellers on it. I think a lot of these are so easy to look past or forget. For many of us shopping on Amazon today, it's been so well integrated that it just works. It's just, you know, it magically works. And I think that that's the elegance behind a lot of this forethought to thinking through the one checkout and the handshake and all of these other systems and mechanisms behind the shopping experience. Well, we felt we were building on other people's work 
too at that point and everything because you know Amazon had tried several things before and had experience there and so everybody builds on somebody else and and that's how we felt but it was busy and it was the the complexity that I was kind of in the middle of was we had both a tremendous amount of Amazon owned platform work to do and we were trying to get a relatively good size of launch partners ready to launch. And so it was the classic, you know, we were building an airplane mid-flight and then a very short time period where systems were actually working so that we could test the cross-seller to Amazon testing and everything, very short period of time. So that was the double-edged challenge that we had of not just the launch work at Amazon, but getting our third-party sellers to be ready and to do the right thing and to understand both the technical as well as the operational challenges that they had to have. And most, a lot of these sellers, they weren't used to shipping an item to a customer. They were used to shipping a pallet to a store, right? And so a lot of them had some really big logistics challenges to figure out in order to fulfill orders, not just the technical challenges of integrating to a catalog. This is a lot of fun, really kind of pulling back the curtain and hearing these early stories about the marketplace business on Amazon. We could probably fill up the whole conversation chatting about this, but I do want to get to the content of your new book, The Amazon Way, and the different principles that you dive into throughout the book. One of my favorite chapters was the chapter on the leadership principle, Invent and Simplify. And in the chapter, you go through a lot of different concepts or manifestations of this leadership principle and how you saw them at work at Amazon. One of the ones that I really enjoyed was this concept of forcing functions. Can you tell us a little bit about what forcing functions are and how you saw those at play? Yeah. So the name of the book is The Amazon Way, and it's just about the leadership principles. And what I always found interesting about the third leadership principle is that it's not just invent, it's invent and simplify. And when you really think about it, like I go, that's kind of surprising. And so I like to double click on the non-obvious aspects of things like that, because there's a lot of learnings there. So forcing functions were a way of gaining clarity or simplicity on a specific attribute or goal that you wanted to accomplish but you weren't going to be able to be as hands-on or directly accountable for that end objective. So you, you had to think of like a little trick or a mechanism to get that end result without being able to pay as direct attention to it. And that's what a, a forcing function is. It forces an outcome that you want without you having direct control of it. So we put a lot of those in place both internally at Amazon as well as with our third party sellers. So an example of a type of forcing function that you can do, a lot of the mechanisms are these types of forcing functions. So a future press release is a good example of a forcing function because it expresses an explicit customer experience that one can test at the end of the day and if we sign up for that future press release, you can kind of let go of it and come back and go, well, you know, can is this what's actually happening? Yes or no. So you can audit against it. Well, that's kind of a forcing function. Metrics and SLAs are, I think, the essential 
forcing function of saying like, you know, I don't understand exactly how everything works or what, what it takes to make this happen, but I need this type of on-time shipping performance for you to participate um, in the marketplace. This is a, a non-negotiable. So we put in place forcing functions relative to measuring on-time shipping performance that at the day, nobody was being held accountable to. And another good one was we had, and this later has gotten Amazon into a little bit of trouble, but that's what big success brings you. But we had parity requirements in our contracts, right? And so price availability promotion parity, meaning if a seller had an item at a particular promotion at their site or in their channel, they had to offer the same thing. Well, how did we audit that, right? So we had to figure out a forcing function, a a way to audit in a highly automated way that they were meeting those parity obligations to us and everything. So those were some of the forcing functions. But I love thinking through with teams completely in different contexts, like how do we create a a trick or a clarification to get to a hard endpoint when we're influencing things. We're not directly in control of things. And when you play the game with kind of that mindset, you can oftentimes find these moves that you do to help A, everybody understand this is what we're signing up for. This is what we mean. So that's the clarity aspect. And then the testing aspect, well, we're going to be able to test to see if you attain that or not. Those are kind of the two aspects of a forcing function that you're looking for. I really like that. And across all of your examples there, they all seem very measurable. So I think the quantifiable component contributes to that simplicity. And I really like one of your opening statements there that invent and simplify are sometimes at odds with each other. And so they're two sides to this important principle that we have at Amazon. You gave some great examples of how Amazon has simplified the process to manage seller businesses. And previously, you shared some examples of how in the marketplace business, you made the shopping experience simple for customers. You know, Amazon always talks about how they're trying to invent on behalf of customers, maybe taking a seller or a merchant's lens as, as one customer set. Were there examples of making the selling experience simpler for a seller, maybe a seller that is considering selling on Amazon for the first time that you were looking to onboard, simple and demonstrating the leadership principle in that manner? Yeah, we clearly recognized for us to be successful, we had to make a great selling experience, right? And, and great meaning flexibility for the seller to try to meet them to where they were but also great in helping them be great at kind of the operational commitments that they needed to meet. And so we really built a culture around that. We can argue whether that's consistent today or or not. I, I Actually, I don't have any real great insights relative to that, but we clearly had a culture of seller obsession in the early days of the marketplace. And that was our customer that we were trying to really understand where they were coming from and that we were fighting for internally at Amazon. So some of the things that we built, one was self-service registration. So just removing the friction of registering as a seller at Amazon was a, we, we actually didn't accomplish it for the initial launch. We hand registered sellers, if I remember correctly, for about the first year of the program, when we finally got self-service registration launched in early 2003, and that was a big decoupling moment for us. It it allowed us to really scale sellers because it was 
horribly complex to correctly register a, a seller. And then if they had to make any changes, it was just, it was just really bad. So, so self-service registration was really complex. And then we also built a, a test bed so that a seller could test their choreography, their feeds with Amazon. And we actually measured and we created a test plan for them. So here's all the use cases that you need to test and prove to yourself and prove to us that you would run and that you had tested. And so we had a high bar relative to quality before they could go live. Um, we created a lot of documentation. The MIG was the initial name for the merchant integration guide. So we wrote the initial MIG and really tried to clarify and simplify what the choreography, the back and forth of selling at Amazon was about and, and the complexity of the item versus the relationship versus the price versus the inventory feed and all of that. And then we started to build what is now a massive ecosystem of third-party partners to help sellers do their business better. So we built an initial small set of third-party integrators and third-party tool makers that helped make it easier for sellers to do their job of which now like that's a that's a massive industry so those were some of the innovations or seller driven ideas that we brought to market to try to make a great selling experience that's such a great sample of many innovations that clearly went into making this experience work i i'm, I'm smiling a little bit here on camera because even Recently, as Amazon continues to expand in new marketplaces, getting self-service registration for sellers is such a big priority because it's, as you said, this catalyst for really opening the doors, making it simple for expanding selection. So you experienced that probably for the first time on the marketplace, but there are iterations of that still going on and it still holds true. Interesting. So I'm curious to understand, you came to Amazon in this role having worked for many industries, I think you were in consulting and, and did some other things as well. So you weren't new to a lot of different styles of innovation, but I'm curious to understand what approaches to invent and simplify did you find really peculiar to Amazon and your work there once you arrived? One of my business partners I worked with at Arthur Anderson. And then after I left Amazon, we were partners at another consulting firm for 14 years together. And one of the things Steve always commented to me about was he goes, you know, when you came out of Amazon, everything you're trying to do when you're working, facilitating a meeting, working with a client is you're always trying to clarify and simplify what the topic is that we're working, either, you know, a problem statement or a mission statement or, you know, an issue, like whatever you're doing, you're always working to clarify and simplify. And his observation was, I think you learned that at Amazon was how critical communication is, especially on complex topics. So, so many of what I think are the real superpowers of Amazon is this culture of clarification that is primarily manifested by both the writing culture, but also the measurement culture, right? Metrics and SLAs. All of those things help give detail and simplicity and insight and clarity to a topic so that we can discuss it with accuracy and then take action on it appropriately. And that to me is one of the hallmark cultural attributes of Amazon. I, I won't say it's completely unique because I, I don't know the entire world, 
But I would say there's not many organizations I've worked with that have a just a superpower internally of like, before we move on something, we understand it really, really well. And I think that's what Amazon does extremely well and why so many of their concepts, they may not all work, but they figure it out pretty quickly whether it's going to work. Like their launch success on new capabilities is extremely high. Things work coming out of the gate. And it's because they understand what they're going to do and what they're not going to do extremely well before they enter into the mission. So John, you've now spent a number of years post Amazon and you've advised clients in a lot of different industries with the benefit of this Amazon background and your experience. What applications or leadership principles or mechanisms have you found to be highly applicable to some of the clients and businesses that you've advised? Essentially, my entire career since I left in 2005 has been helping make change happen, helping to innovate at clients by using all these different levers of change that I saw so clearly defined and practiced at Amazon. And, and I get people sometimes saying, oh, well, John, you, you know, you, you created this. Like, no, 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 I didn't cr- create any of these things. I just paid attention in class. Like I just learned a ton. And it was about seven years after I left Amazon, a client of mine at the Gates Foundation called me into his office and, and he goes, you know, you do a, a really subtle and nice job of kind of taking these aspects from Amazon and inserting them into our work. He goes, I think you ought to write a book. And so I talked to him and be my partner on the books. That was the smartest thing I did. And, and that's, so I, I started writing these books several years after I left Amazon. And, it, and it's because they were specific practices that you could practice and put into play. I usually resist the notion. I, I get asked, like, well, you know, John, that's a big playbook of stuff, right? Like, well, what's the one thing we, we really need to pay attention to? And I go, there isn't one thing. It's the combination of things, and it's knowing which ones to apply in which moments. That takes wisdom. Like, you got to have me along to, to know kind of which ones to apply in specific moments. But I will answer the question. And, and I would say, universally, I found measuring better is always something that I find is needed in any situation, right? So metrics, SLAs, um, uh, customer signal measures, customer experience measures. And then people think of metrics as a noun, as a thing. I think of metrics as a verb, right? How do you make change happen? How do you drive accountability, good discussion and action based off of those insights from our metrics. So, you know, we had a big culture of metrics meetings. That was the entire rhythm of Amazon. There's different ways to do that, but how do you make metrics a verb so that you actually create action and accountability out of these insights? That is a a pretty safe bet typically that like there's work to do relative to how we measure. I'm excited to continue to see the impact that you have. Maybe to come back to it, I know that we didn't have time to go through 90% of your book. um, And I highly recommend anyone listening to check out the Amazon Way. A lot of insights on each of the, I should say, 14 leadership principles that were the complete set up until about a week ago. We're recording this July 7th. You know, Amazon just released two new leadership principles about a week ago. They are strive to be Earth's best employer. And success and scale bring broad responsibility. 
And interestingly, John, you know, your, your book was written a few months back and your updated preface to the book suggests that Amazon make a similar leadership principle. I think you call it the golden rule. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts behind that suggestion and what you think about these two new leadership principles Amazon just announced? Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is I wrote that preface. So Tom Alberg, who was on the board at Amazon for 23 years, wrote the foreword. And Tom really quizzed me on every aspect of, of this book, but in particular on the preface, because he had to be very thoughtful relative to Amazon because it wasn't a criticism. It was a strategy. And and so the the game I played was if I got in, invited in and, you know, the board or Jeff, like, hey, you know, we've got this big negative narrative going on. We know we've got some problems we need to address. Like, how would you start? It was like, Change at Amazon always starts with the leadership principle. So the first thing I would do is think about, well, what change could we make to the leadership principles to both make some real change at Amazon, but equally change the strategic external conversation, this largely negative big tech uh, narrative that's going on. Like, what's the move that we could do to help improve on both those? So I, that's how I came to a recommendation of thinking about a new leadership principle that I called the golden rule, which is basically, you know, the golden rule is do unto others as you undo yourself. And so I talked about like, you know, you need to do better for you need to put employees first. You need to put communities first. You need to put innovation and and a successful community of businesses and brands first and balance those with your customers and your shareholder concerns. That's an obligation. Amazon has has won. They're the king of the mountain. And the buried line in Jeff's shareholder letter that he released just prior to releasing the book, but after I'd written the preface, was he goes, when Amazon leads, others follow. And he was talking about the need to rethink the employee and the employee safety. And I think that is exactly the point, which is being good has never been the bar at Amazon. Being a leader has always been the bar at Amazon. And I hope that the next 25 years, that's what I'm thinking about. It's not the past 27 years, the next 25 years, Amazon thinks about how do we be a leader on all of these topics? So I applaud the new leadership principles. And it, I think it's always been one of Amazon's strengths is to be vocally self-critical, look at themselves and go, what do we need to change? And realizing that the leadership principles are a key mechanism for change at Amazon. So I, I think they're great. I'm equally excited to see what develops from Amazon now that they've monumentalized these leadership principles in their culture. Well, I've been thinking about, and I don't have a good answer for this, like, well, you know, every leadership principle has mechanisms to it, right? So what are the mechanisms that they put in place to institutionalize these two new leadership principles? I think that'll be, you know, part of what they figure out over the next year or two. They've clearly said this is a priority and they clearly recognize, you know, where there's smoke, there's fires. There are some issues that do not represent the Amazon brand well. But I do think it is a savvy move. It will reset some of the narrative that's going on out there. Well, John, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, uh, and I've been really impressed by your forethought. You know, your forethought and thinking about 
this next step for Amazon moving into the future, the forethought that you shared with us having stepped into Amazon and your role in launching the third-party marketplace, and then the forethought that you help brands and businesses and leaders develop as you work with them through your advising and, and consulting practice. What types of businesses should think about reaching out to Rossman Partners and what would you recommend folks do that, that want to hear a little bit more about you and get to know you beyond your new book? Well, kind of half my business is keynote speaking. So I love coming in and talking to audiences about, you know, I always say like, this isn't about Amazon, this is about you. And what are you going to do to compete differently in a different competitive era and translating these concepts and these stories to their business and their industry. That's what I love to do is that quick dose of kind of it's it's both inspiration, but it's practice, right? Like these are things they can do today to make change happen. And then I do work with a select few advisory clients as a long-term participant in their strategy and culture development. But I do things like this to help give people scalable tools that they can use to figure out like what are their own principles. In fact, I wrote, there's a new appendix in this version of the Amazon way called building your own leadership principles. It's something I've helped a few teams do. And I think the process of really thinking through what's our answer to these principles. Those are Amazon principles. What are our principles? I think that's an extremely healthy process for any company, especially one that's been around for a while, to really be willing to rethink. So I wrote that appendix for them. Awesome. I recommend checking out the book for anybody listening, The Amazon Way. John, it's been a really fun conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Tyler, it's been nice getting to know you. Thanks. And it's great talking with somebody who really appreciates Amazon, you know, the high points, the low points. Um, it's not perfect, but I really appreciate interacting with somebody who, who gets it. 